welcome to the Redeemer 20 Sermon Podcast, where our goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. My name is Luke Dirks, and I'm your host, and I'm also privileged to lead the 20s ministry at Redeemer Church in beautiful Rockford, Illinois. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at our Thursday night gathering at 7 p.m. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope you also join us at a future Thursday. chapter 6 verse 35 Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and and I will raise him up on that last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, "Do Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that they may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, live, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are in spirit and life. But there, but there are some of you who did not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he is one of the twelve who was going to betray him. All right, would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you for this evening. God, we pray that you would be glorified tonight as we come together, and Lord, we look at your word, as we focus in on this text in John chapter 6, and God, ask the question, what does it mean to follow you, and what does it look like to endure when it is difficult to follow you? Um, God, we know that at the end of the road, the answer starts with Jesus, and God, that we need him so desperately, and so, God, we thank you that you have sent a Savior, and we praise him now. Lord, would you help us and would you forgive us for the ways where we have failed to follow you, for the moments where we have been distracted from you this week, where we have sinned against you, where we have chosen to worship things that are not you this week, and would you turn our eyes back to your throne tonight? God, would you remind us of your glory? Would you remind us of your goodness to us so that we can delight in it and follow you all the days of our life? God, we pray that you would do this, and we pray also that you would open up our eyes to this text, that, God, you would teach us through it, that your Holy Spirit would move through the word, 
so that we are changed by it to look more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray all these things in his name. Amen. One of the most fearless people to ever live was a man named Mark Andre Leclerc. And there is a documentary about this man, if you don't know who he is. Uh, it's called The Alpinist. And if you've seen it, then you know why I can say with confidence in my heart that he is one of the most fearless and maybe craziest people who has ever lived on this planet. Uh, you see, Leclerc, he was a, what's called a free solo climber. And so he was somebody who participated in the, rock, uh, the sport of rock climbing. And he practiced a very extreme form of climbing called solo alpinism. And uh, what this is, I kind of stumbled upon uh, Leclerc couple, I think it was last October. I had seen some other documentaries that were similar, but I hadn't seen that one. And uh, Leclerc, really what he, what he would do is he would go and find some of the tallest mountains all across the world. And as he would go and he would find these mountains, what he would do is he'd drive to them or, you know, fly over, and he would take no equipment. So he would show up, he wouldn't have any ropes, no anchors, nothing to attach himself to the mountain. He would just show up, you know, with his, his clothes on, and then he would just climb. So the show kind of follows him, the, the documentary follows him through this as he he goes to these crazy spots and then slowly becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until he just looks like a tiny speck on the edge of these like thousand foot cliffs. And it's crazy because he puts himself in some pretty compromising positions. Uh, at one point he's on like a glacier. So he's not even on a cliff face anymore. It's just ice and he has these like pickaxes and he's completely suspended, you know, just above certain death. And there he is just kind of like smiling and he's just kind of... Click, click, and he climbs all the way up, and he's almost going inverted under the cliff. And he does all these crazy things, and you watch it, and you just think to yourself, there's like, there's no way. Like, I, I don't even know. Like, you watch it, and there is actually, like, no possibility that a single person here could do what Leclerc does. In fact, the other guys who participate in this sport of uh, solo alpinism, even they think he's crazy. Like, they're like, no way. That dude, he's nuts. Like, there's something off here. And the reason why is because he goes a step further than just, you know, doing what most people do, climbing up with no equipment. And that's that he would show up having never looked at the cliff before. So he'd come to these mountains, and most climbers would plan a route up the way. And when he would show up, it would be completely fresh to him. And so not only is he having to just have the difficulty of physically climbing up these cliff faces, he's having to figure out how he's going to do it in the first place in real time. So like he's getting to these crazy spots. It's not like he knows, oh yeah, there's a route through this. It's like there's certain times where he'll go an hour up one direction and then realize, oh yeah, there's no way forward. I got to backtrack 30 minutes and then start climbing the other way. And it's not like he's like, oh yeah, just walking up steps. No, it's he's suspended by his arms for the entire three hours. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, man, that dude is absolutely nuts. But here's the problem. When you climb like that, there is absolutely nothing that holds you on to the side of the mountain. And if a storm comes or if you make a single mistake, you fall. And uh, sure enough, that's what eventually happened to Leclerc. And so he passed away in 2018 when he fell to his death while climbing. I didn't know that going into the documentary, so it wrecked me. So I'm saving you from the same pain. But he ended up passing away. And the reason I start with this is because most young adults approach their spiritual lives the same way that Leclerc approached rock climbing. You know, if the Christian faith were a mountain that we were ascending, that we were climbing, then we, this group right here, are the ones who leave the ropes and the anchors at home and go at it with nothing but our own strength holding us to the edge of the cliff. And I'm not just making this up. I read a survey I was, uh, as I was preparing this message. It's from a group called Barna, and they estimate that roughly 70% of high school students 
who enter college as professing Christians will leave with little to no faith. And that 80% of those who grew up in the church will be disengaged by the time they're 29. That is a staggering statistic. Actually, it broke my heart to read that and to realize 80% of the people who are our age, who have been raised up in the church, surrounded by people who love God, they will abandon their faith. I mean, it's something I think we've all probably experienced at one point or the other. I mean, how many people have you known who seem to make a good start in the Christian faith only to then fall away and reject all the truths they used to say they believed in? You see it in friends, family, there's college roommates even in my case. You know, there's so many people who turn away from Christ in this stage of life that you and I are at. And the Apostle Paul, he says it this way, we are at risk, great risk, of shipwrecking the faith. Or of beginning the race, but failing to complete it. And certainly, you know, other people face the same difficulties, there's the same issues um, when you get older, when you're younger, but there's something about our age group, young adults, 20s, that you are vulnerable to this idea of falling away from your faith. And I think it's really important to note here that what I'm not saying is that God ever loses his children. You have to affirm both, that there are people who walk away from the faith, but that God never loses his children. He keeps every single one of them to the end. Amen? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to what? Completion at the day of Christ. We should be thankful tonight that God finishes the work in us. And I think you have to start there recognizing that ultimately when it comes to enduring in your faith, it's always going to be a work that God does. But there is a part that we have to play. And when you look at scripture, I think it's one of the great promises that Jesus keeps his children to the very end. In fact, Chance already read it for us in verse 30, I think it's 37, if you look at it. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's a promise that Jesus is saying, the people that God gives to me, they're going to stay mine. I'm not letting go of them no matter what happens. But then we are confronted with this idea that there will be many people, because the Bible speaks to this as well, that there will be people who give the appearance of following Jesus only to then fall away later in life. And it creates this tension, doesn't it? You're like, man, okay, God, you've given us this wonderful promise that the people you that are yours, the children that are yours, they're going to make it to the end no matter what happens. No matter what difficulties, no matter how much backsliding there is, you will bring them to the end. But then at the same time, there are people who fall away, and they seem like they were Christians. So how do those two things work out? There's a tension there. And this dynamic, this tension plays out in John chapter 6. I want to look briefly at the context. Um, in this passage that Chance read for us, Jesus is in the middle of his discourse on the bread of life. So if you were here last week, I heard it was a, a small turnout, but if you were here, uh, Luke got to preach on the text where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we're still in the middle of that. But what's important to know is that this is immediately after feeding the 5,000. And so as Jesus is preaching this message, there is anywhere between 3,000 to 10,000 people there listening to him. Because after Jesus fed the 5,000, it says they all followed him. They all got in their boats. They said, we got to follow this guy. And so they followed him out to hear this sermon. And there's tons of them. Like essentially, Jesus has a mega church at this point. But it doesn't last. The majority end up leaving. And one of the commentaries I read um, kind of gave this statistic. They said by the end of his discourse, it was likely that Jesus had less than 100 followers remaining. So he goes from 10,000, or 3,000, but we'll go low end, 3,000 to 100 followers. That's a 97% a loss of people. You know, if that happened here at Redeemer, <laughs> it 
the, the, the number would be 36 if you showed up on Sunday morning. So if you were, you were gone, you know, John preached a sermon, and then, you know, everybody just decided to leave. You'd show up at the 8 a.m. It'd probably just be you. The 9.30 might have, like, the majority of those people, and then 11.30 might have five. It'd probably just be you. And if you showed up, you know what you would be thinking to yourself? What in the world did John say last week? There's nobody here. Like, what did he teach on? You're like, maybe they put Alex up there. You know, <laughs> and he just went nuts. Because all of a sudden, everybody's gone. And what that tells you is that there was something divisive. There was something disruptive about what was taught. That's the only reason you would lose upwards of ten, you know, 9,000 people within a moment. And sure enough, that's the case here. In the discourse on the bread of life, Jesus taught several doctrines that were so divisive, his disciples couldn't even stomach them. And they ended up walking away. And for the sake of time tonight, I am only going to mention these doctrines in passing. Uh, each one of these deserves their own sermon. And so I'm not going to jump into them. But it is important to know what they are. And so in this sermon, in what, in Ch what Chance just read for us, what you find is the doctrine of the incarnation in verse 38. Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. What he teaches is, I'm the one who came down. I was in heaven, but now I'm here. So people struggle with it. The second doctrine is the doctrine of salvation. And this is what takes up the majority of the text. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want eternal life. And, you know, the Jews are like... You're like, Jesus, that's kind of weird, man. Like, what are you saying? Are you, you don't actually, you're like, you don't mean that, right? And he goes, no, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you will have no life in you. And they're like, no way. They can't deal with it. They do not understand what Jesus is saying. They're like, this is cannibalism. We're out of here. And so that doctrine pushes them away. In reality, just as a side note, what Jesus is talking about is you need to feast on me if you want to be saved. You need to partake by faith in who I am. They missed it. So that's the second doctrine, doctrine of salvation. And then the final one, it's probably the most divisive in our time, you find in verse 44. And Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that word draws him, that phrase is problematic because what it does is it gives a basis for the doctrine of election. The idea that God is the one who chooses who will come to know him. And these people, they, they struggle with it. They're like, there's Jesus. I don't understand. And so here's these three huge doctrines that have books written about them and could take up multiple sermons. And Jesus drops them all in one sermon. I'm not going to do the same thing to you. <laughs> We're going to keep moving on. But I want you to realize that each of these are crucial parts of the faith. And that you should study them and wrestle with them in your own time. Like, I encourage you to dive deeper into each of those topics outside of tonight. Or if you have questions, to ask your small group leader and dive into it there. It's worth doing it. But it's important for you to understand for our focus tonight... The, the main idea that I draw from that section is that it is only after Jesus teaches these things that the majority of his disciples walk away. And you see this in verse 60. And this is where I want to jump in for our message tonight. So I'm going to read 60 through 66. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, this is referencing the sermon, they said to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. 
And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And then we'll end with verse 66. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Essentially, um, <laughs> excuse me, Jesus gives this sermon. The disciples complain, and this is not talking about the 12. It's talking about everyone that's there with him. Thousands of people are now grumbling with each other. They're complaining. Jesus, this is really hard to understand. And Jesus responds by saying, you know, this is why I told you. Only those who the Father calls can come to me. And it's at this point that everybody decides to leave him. Everybody decides to walk away. And what's interesting to me about this verse is who exactly walks away. Look at 66. Does it say the, the Pharisees walked away? Does it say it was the Jews who walked away? It's not the people on the fringe who leave Jesus here. Who does it say left him? Disciples. Disciples are the ones who turn back and walk away from Jesus after he teaches a hard sermon. And in the Greek, the word for disciple, it's mathetes. And what it means is it ones who it's a person who follows teaching. So the idea, the, the mental picture of the word is a mouse following breadcrumbs. And it's ironic that John would say it's the disciples. It's the ones who follow the teaching that turn away from the teaching. It's, it's a contrast. It's an oxymoron. And I think what it highlights is the fact that following the teaching of Jesus is not the same thing as believing the teaching of Jesus. It's not the same thing as submitting your life to what God has said when it gets difficult and hard to understand. You see, that's what it takes to be a follower of Christ. And these so-called disciples were not willing to do it. And so they turn back. And it's at this moment, when everyone else is leaving, that then Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? And this is where I really want to spend our time. Because the 12 disciples heard the exact same sermon that all these other people heard. They heard the difficult doctrines, and it's likely that they felt the exact same way. It's really likely they didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying. But they stayed anchored to Christ. Something was different about the way they followed Jesus than the way everybody else followed Jesus. Because when it got tough, they stayed in it. And I think the most revealing thing about their ability to do this is Peter's answer to Jesus' question. And so what I want to do is I want to draw three points from two verses. And the reason I want to pull them out is because I believe they are the principles that will help you to do what the apostles did in this situation. Because, again, the greatest temptation that we face, this this demographic right here is falling away from the faith and what you need what i need what this group needs is to be anchored in christ that's why i draw my title anchored in the rock coming back to mark andre what he was missing the thing that would have saved his life is anchors that were pounded into the rock to hold him there if he fell that would have saved him and that is what will save us, our anchors that are keeping us attached to Christ as we move forward in the faith. And so looking at his answer, I want to read it and then we'll dive in. Jesus says to the twelve, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Three anchors from those two verses. Here's the first one. 
If you want to be anchored to the rock, then you must drop all pretense. If you want to be anchored to the rock, if you want to make it endure, then you have to drop all pretense. In other words, you have to stop pretending. You have to be sincere and genuine in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. And I take this from the second half of verse 68. Peter starts by saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? And here's the key. He says then, you have the words of eternal life. God, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. And what this answer shows is the motive for Peter's religion. Why was Peter following Jesus in the first place? It's not the same reason that all the people who left were following Jesus. In fact, if you go back to verse, I think it's 26, Jesus condemns all the people following him because they are following him for bread. Look at what he says. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So why is everyone else following Jesus, the people who fall away? Because they wanted more food. They wanted a material blessing. But when Peter is confronted, what is he looking for? Eternal life. He's looking for eternal life. This was the opposite of everyone else who had just turned back. Those people, again, they weren't looking for eternal life. They weren't looking for what Jesus was actually offering them. They weren't sincere followers. I think it shows that they wanted to use Jesus. I think that's what it boils down to. The reason these people left and Peter didn't is because they wanted to use Jesus and Peter wanted to know Jesus. You know, I think we've all, uh, you've either had or will have a friend who's not actually a friend at some point in your life. And these are people who come into your life and you think they love you. You know, like you interact with them, you're like, man, this person's so for me. But they're not. You know, really what they actually want is just the things you offer to them. This is true of all cats, by the way. <laughs> they do not love you. <laughs> they just want what you offer them, <laughs> food. But for the friend who's not actually a friend, what do they want from you? It could be anything. They could want your stuff. They could want, you know, maybe the fact that you're popular. They want to be with you, so they're popular. They offer all these, you know, they kind of have this whole facade. But deep down, they're just using you. And there comes a point where you realize that they're a friend who's not really a friend. You want to know how you feel? If you haven't had this happen yet, you feel disgusted. You feel insulted. You feel angry. And yet that's exactly how these people were going to Jesus. They were friends who were not friends. And if we're honest, how often do we approach Jesus the same way? Think about it. I mean, when your prayer life only consists of the things that you need in the moment, how do you think Jesus feels? Like, what's his opinion on the matter? If you look at Scripture, the greatest commandment doesn't say, come to God when you need him to get a better job. It doesn't say, you know, come to God when you're feeling down and out so that he can make you feel better in the moment. It doesn't say, come to God, rub the genie bottle, he'll give you everything. No, it says, love the Lord your God. Love him. Want the relationship with him. There's such a difference between those two views of approaching God. One is filled with pretense. It's an action that you're doing to manipulate. The other one is saying, God, I'm coming to you because I want more of you. Do you realize that's what Peter's asking Jesus for when he says, Lord, you have the words of eternal life? What is eternal life? It's being with Jesus forever. What did Peter want? What was his desire in this moment? He's saying, Jesus, I have you now. I want you forever. And what you see in this moment is that Peter's motive was pure, where all these other people, they didn't have the same. They just wanted what Jesus could offer to them. Are you doing the same, believer? If you're a follower of Christ, is that the motive of your heart in prayer and worship and all these things? Is that what's driving you to Jesus, a desire to have him 
abundantly forever because he's good? Or is it just, you know, it's always these circumstances that are driving me to him? Not that it's bad to pray, you know, when you need something, but to say, Jesus, is that all I come to you for? Or do I actually love you? When I use the point, drop all pretense, what it means is that you have to work your heart to the same point that Peter was at. You have to work your heart to the point where what it wants is Jesus, Jesus, and more Jesus. And I think the way that you do that, friends, is by prayer and through being in the word. It's prayerfully saying, God, you know, I have to confess that isn't my first desire. There's all these other things that come first. God, let me repent of them now. Maybe you need to name those things out loud and say, God, I want this more than I want you right now. Forgive me. You know, I want X relationship or this position, these things. And God, I know I shouldn't. Forgive me. Give me the strength. Give me the heart that Peter had. Give me that kind of heart that says, Lord, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life, right? It might not be easy. And again, it might take a lot of prayer on your part, but it will anchor you to the rock, just like it did for Peter. That brings me to the second anchor. <laughs> so if that's the first, dropping all pretense, being genuine. Here's the second. You have to consider your options. And I take this from the first part of Peter's answer in verse 68. Jesus says, do you want to go away as well, Peter? Lord, to whom shall we go? This is maybe my favorite part of Peter's answer. Because <laughs> he looks around and he says, Jesus, like, what else is there? He's like, I don't understand. He's like, but you're the only option. He's come to a place where he has a clear perspective on all the other alternatives to following Jesus. And you have to think about it. What exactly was it that the other disciples, the ones who left, what were they going back to? There's really three options. Judaism, okay? Jesus, we can't understand you. We're going to go back to working our way to heaven. It's going to be legalistic. We're going to have to, you know, kill a lot of bulls and rams, but we'll do it. Off they go. Peter looks at that and he goes, no, that's not enough. I need better blood. Second option I would say is polytheism. The most uh, kind of relevant one would have been the, the Greek gods. It's the idea of worshiping multiple gods or cults. So Peter looks at that and he goes, well, no, that's not good enough. You know, they all just get angry at you even if you give them money and then they kill you. So I'm not going that way. Third option, humanism. The idea of just chasing pleasure for its own end until you waste away at the end of your life. Those were the options that people were going back to. And Peter, having those in his mind, says, Lord, those are not actually options. None of those have what I need, which is a pathway to eternal life. He says, Lord, where else can we go? And I think there's a great illustration of this uh, from the band for King and Country. Have any of you heard for King and Country? Okay. They have a song called Burn the Ships. And... Uh, Really, the way it goes, uh, it's kind of this song that they have, and the intro to the chorus follows as such. It goes, we've got to burn the ships, cut the ties, send a flare into the night, say a prayer, turn the tide, dry your tears, and wave goodbye. And here's what it's based off of. The song comes from the story of Cortez in the early 1500s when he landed at South America and conquered the Aztec Empire. You're like, how did they get there? Well, what Cortez did is when they showed up to conquer, you know, all of these um, different groups, he landed with 600 men. They definitely had more technology, but they were about to have to conquer thousands and thousands of people. You have 600 men, and here's what Cortez does. He decides to burn the ships. So as soon as he lands, he has all of his men get off the ships. You know, they make camp. And then when they're not looking, he burns the ships. And what does it do? Sends a message. You have one option. Here's what you get to do. Conquer or die. 
and what happened was that it fueled the men's drive to conquer. And you want to know what happened? Within two years, they had taken down the Aztec Empire. 600 men. There is a strength that you gain from having only one option. And what Peter did in this moment is he burned the ships because they weren't ships to begin with. He looked around and he says, look, none of these things are options. There's only one option, and it's Jesus. And so sure enough, he says, Lord, where else can I go? Where else can I go? He had to consider the options first, though, and realize there weren't any. And I th- the same is so true for us, isn't it? You know, we don't look at, you know, legalistic Judaism. Well, we do look at legalism, not Judaism. We don't look at, like, pantheism, I don't think. Those aren't going to be temptations for you. You're not going to go, oh, yes, Jesus was yesterday, Zeus is today. You're not going to, like, lean that way and just start worshiping him. No. What are the options, then, for you that are going to pull you away from Christ? Well, I think the biggest one is humanism. This idea of chasing pleasure, of living for yourself. And really what it is, it's apathy of pretending like God just doesn't exist, and you know what, I'm going to get in anyways. That is the number one option that is leading people to hell today, is this idea of, I just don't care. And what you have to do as a believer, as someone who is pursuing Christ, is say, Lord, are there any other options? And I challenge you, look, think through it. Are drugs and alcohol going to get me where I want to go? I don't think so. You know, if I just become a humanitarian, I just do really good things my whole life, is that going to get me where I want to go? Or if I just go into work and I make my business, you know, my idol, and I just chase that thing all the way down, is that going to get me where I want to go? No. You can chase those roads. But what you have to do at the end of the day, if you want to stay anchored to Christ, is realize that none of them are valid options. And you have to burn the ships. You have to realize, no, those aren't options. It's you and you alone, Jesus. And when you do that, you know what it will do? It will give you power. It will give you an ability to push through doctrines and moments that are hard for you to understand. If you can't understand why election is in the Bible, or if you can't understand why God condemns homosexuality in the Bible, and you're wrestling with that, the easy option is to say, you know what, I'm just done. It's too hard. But what Peter is doing here, what we need to do is say, God, even if I don't understand, even if it is hard, There are no other options, and so I'm going to stick with you until I do understand. And I'm going to work at it to figure it out. That's what it means to burn the ships. It's the thing that allowed Peter in this moment to stay attached to Christ, even though everyone else was falling away. Brings me to the last one. The last anchor. If the first was that you have to, you know, get rid of all pretense, the second was that you have to, you know, (laughs) burn the ships, the last one's the most important, and it's you need to sit at his feet. And by his, I mean Jesus. I pulled this from verse 69. Jesus asks, do you want to go away as well? Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, why is that statement so awesome? I will inform you. It is because that statement is in the perfect present tense. And I'm not a grammar person, so I had to look that up. (laughs) Man, I thought you guys would laugh at that. Okay. I'm glad that, like, (laughs) yeah, never mind. I'm bad at grammar. There you go. There's my confession. So I looked this up, and here's what it means to be in the perfect present tense. It means that it is an action... That has happened in the past, which then continues forward, but with it, its consequences continue forward and are unending. So, what does that mean specifically for this verse? 
Well, what it means is that Peter is saying, God, the reason I can stay with you right now, Jesus, is because not that I know you right now, but because I have come to know you before. And not only have I come to know you before, but I trust that I'm going to continue to get to know you forever. And it is this idea that you must have a knowledge of who Jesus is and be interacting with him daily if you want to be anchored to him. What he's saying is, look, everybody else, these crowds that are following you, how long have they been here? A week? A couple days, maybe, since feeding the 5,000? That's not enough time to build up trust, is it? Even if you see the guy do some miracles, these people did not have any kind of a relationship built with Jesus. So as soon as it gets difficult, they abandon him. But Peter and the apostles have been with Jesus, doing what? Sitting at his feet. Right? It's what Mary does in the book of Luke in chapter 10 when Jesus is teaching. It says that while Martha was cleaning, Mary chose to go and sit at Jesus' feet and get the teaching. Hear what he had to say. Get to know who he is. And I think of all the points, this is the most important because until you learn to sit at the feet of Jesus, you will never be solid in your relationship with him. The thing that's going to equip you to then endure these storms that are going to come, if you're not experiencing them yet, I promise you there is going to be something the Bible says or something that life throws at you that will make you want to stop being a Christian. Maybe not outright, but it will like be difficult for you. And the thing that is going to help you work through that is having a relationship with Christ that has been built over time by sitting at his feet. I think we all interact with this idea all the time. It's kind of this idea of we trust our old friends, not our new friends. There are some guys in my life who are my brothers. Not by blood, but just their brothers. And I can guarantee you that if one of them came up to me and said, Alex, I can't give you any context, but I need you to show up. I need you to fly out, show up, and just be ready for whatever happens. I would do it in a heartbeat. Like, there's not even a question. And here's the thing. They would probably do it for me in a heartbeat, even if I told them what it was and it was something horrendous. There are guys in my life who I'm like, yeah, I need you to come and, like, I need you to, like, put someone away. I'm thinking of one in particular. He's about to become a Green Beret. And I know that without question... He would come and do it. Do you think he would do that for somebody he doesn't know? Probably not. What is it that then equips him to just go? It doesn't matter what Alex is saying. It doesn't matter if it's like, you know, I just have some vendetta, you know, against like my male lady or something. And I'm like, get her. He's like, all right, no questions. Boom. Like it doesn't, that wouldn't even be a factor. He'd be like, all right, Alex said it needs to be done. It needs to be done. Right? That's the mindset that Peter has here. Obviously less, you know, funny, but the idea is, look, I know you, Jesus. And because I know you over a long extended amount of time by being with you, it doesn't even matter to me. Yes, in the sense of I want to figure these things out, but ultimately, there's no question in my heart I'm staying with you. It's not even a doubt in my mind. I'm going to get through those things. I'll wrestle them out but I'm going to stick it out with you. Why? Because I have sat at your feet for an extended amount of time. Friends, the thing that is going to equip you to be anchored to the rock through whatever storm comes is by doing the same. It's going to be by knowing Jesus intimately. And so we sometimes get distracted when we think about reading the Bible or praying or coming to church, and it becomes this list you can almost see it in your mind. You just, all right, read Bible, check. Prayed today, check. Sent a verse to a friend via text today, check. You know, you can go through the whole thing. But as you do that, what it becomes is this monotonous, just kind of rhythm that you do because you've just been doing it. Not because you want to sit at Jesus' feet and get to know him. All of those things serve the purpose of you knowing Jesus. We get it backwards. We're like, all right, we know Jesus so we can pray and read and do all these things. No, they all come under the purpose of knowing Jesus. 
That's what it means to sit at his feet. It's I'm coming under you to know you. And I would encourage you to think rightly about your spiritual disciplines. Don't make them a task. Don't make them some like check mark you have to put on the piece of paper to be a good Christian. No, let them be your means of sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because that's where he's going to speak to you is in his word and through prayer. And that will be the thing that helps you to endure hardships and hard doctrines when they come. That's how it was for the disciples. Even though everybody else left, they were able to remain because they had known him. They had known him. And the same is going to be true for us. As I wrap up, there's one last section to this passage. And it's a sobering one. Peter gives this awesome answer. And Jesus says to him, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. You're like, oh. <laughs> You're like, you got to imagine what Peter thought when he heard that. But then 71 clears it up. It says, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why is this included in the passage? I think it's because Jesus wanted to remind his disciples, you don't just get anchored to the rock once and then you're good to go. You do come to know Jesus, and again, he holds you all the way through. But the idea of, you know, <laughs> I stopped pretending this one time, and, you know, I, I kind of had a good season of being in the Word, but now I've passed on. That doesn't apply. These are all things that have to be maintained constantly. And then the example for it is Judas. Isn't it interesting that Judas perseveres here, but then he doesn't later? Like, this seems like a pretty big trial. Wouldn't that be the moment where Judas reveals his true colors and says, you know, Jesus, yeah, I'm done. But he doesn't. He stays. And one of the commentaries I wrote said this about specifically Judas. It said, a little religion will carry a man through many trials. But there is an experimentum crucius. It means decisive experiment. There is a decisive experiment which nothing but sincerity can stand. And so Judas has a little bit of religion, not faith, and he perseveres through this trial. But then when one comes that's too big for him, he falls and he abandons Christ. And I think the application is that for us then, as we are working through these different anchors, as you're working out just these steps in your life that you're trying to include as a part of your faith in Jesus, there should be a healthy reverence and fear that you maintain as you strengthen your heart's position towards Jesus. And I don't want this to be a moment where you're like, oh man, that was, am I not saved? You know, I've wrestled with these things before. That's not what I'm saying. You should be sure that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, he will keep you to the very end. But you are still called to be active in working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's why these things are so necessary. And so, just a reminder, stay in it. And keep your heart positioned towards Christ as you do. Finally, I think the question has to be asked, in light of this, as you're wrestling with this idea of which kind of disciple am I? Am I the one who leaves or am I the one that stays? I want you to ask yourself the question, have you submitted your life to Jesus? I'm not talking about intellectually agreeing, you know, Jesus came and he died and he rose again. No, I'm saying you need to look within your heart and ask yourself, what is my hope that I will make it into heaven if I were to die tonight? And you need to wrestle with this idea of the gospel, the fact that Jesus lived for you, and then that Jesus died for you, that Jesus rose again for you, and then believing that one day he's going to come back for you. That is the only truth that can save you. That is the anchor to the faith, to the rock, is holding on to that. And if you do not believe that, if it has just been something that you have intellectually agreed to, maybe you've I heard this, but I have not actually submitted to it, then repent and believe in Jesus Christ today. Don't push it off. Submit your life to him. And the Bible is so clear. 
If you do, God receives you freely. Isn't that the beauty of faith? (laughs) Because if we're all honest, how many of these steps do we actually maintain faithfully in our lives? We fail all the time, don't we? Even Peter, he gives this awesome answer, but what happens at the crucifixion? He denies Jesus. Is that the end for Peter? No. God has so much grace. He restores him. And he restores us too. And he pours out his love on you. If you come to Jesus and submit your life to him, he is faithful to restore you. And so if you don't believe, believe today. If you do believe, then this should all just be joyous news for you and an encouragement because you have assurance in Christ to know that, all right, Jesus, I'm not great at any of these things, but you're taking me to the end. Right? I used this illustration a couple weeks ago. You know, you're the player on the bench, but MJ's playing, so guess what? You get the ring. You win. That is your hope as a believer. Jesus calls you to play, to give your effort, to do everything you can as you strive after him, but ultimately, he's the one that brings you home. Amen? Come on. We get to go home because of what he does. That's our hope. And so when you're wrestling with this idea, God, I don't feel it today. I'm not... I failed today. I sinned today. You can stand there and say, on Christ the solid rock I stand. And you can thank God for the waves that send you down upon him. That changes your mindset. That changes the way you approach your life. It changes the way that you step into relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, that's what he wants. He wants you to know him. All for his glory. All for his glory glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this text. Thank you for John chapter 6 and all this good stuff it has in it. But most especially, God, thank you for the answer that Peter gives. I pray that it would be the same answer in our hearts tonight, God, that we would look to you and say there's no other options. We're sinners. We need you. Save us. And God, I pray that we would experience the grace and the blessing that you have reserved for those who say that, who position their hearts that way. God, would you help us this week when we fail? Would you help us in moments where we do love things that aren't you more than you, where we try and chase them and find satisfaction in them? Bring us back to you, God. And let us have joy. Lord, let us have joy in our relationship with you because we know where we end. God, it's going to be with you forever. And we look forward to that day, God. We long for that day where we get to worship you and praise you and sing of all your glory forever and ever. And God, by, you know, the very, (laughs) as we go into eternity, there will come a point, 10,000 years, and we'll have no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. I pray that would be the encouragement of our hearts, that we would long for it, and that you would produce it in us through your spirit. God, I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.